Is it on? Is the microphone on? Do I touch Good morning, ladies. I'll just bring us all together. I hope your discussion went well there and just primed our minds for what we're going to talk about this morning. So I have the privilege of kicking off the study of Luke and walking us through the first two chapters of Luke. And if you're like me, Luke is a you know, somewhat familiar book, just being a gospel. So I want to challenge us to put aside our previous perceptions or fight against zoning out if it's familiar to us. Because it is just a remarkable book. I, as I've been studying, I've just been reminded of just how amazing this account is. And Luke has laid it out in such an, a remarkable way of gradually revealing who Jesus is. From birth to the cross, the resurrection. And uh, so I don't want us to miss that. So I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited to study Luke. Like Chantel said, it'll be kind of a, a flyover. We're going to cover a lot in each section. Um, so I'm just going to jump in. Let's talk about the author. So who is Luke? Luke, we know he is a well-educated man from his style of writing and how he structured it. Um, and then there's clues elsewhere in the New Testament that he was a doctor by profession. And then his name is Greek. So that gives us kind of an idea that he came into the family of God as a Gentile, which gives him a more specific um, perspective that we'll see as he as we read through Luke. And then um, Luke didn't necessarily know Jesus personally, but he was connected with the apostles, and then he was a companion for Paul on his missionary journeys. So he got that eyewitness or that, that connection there. And did you know that Luke is, actually has a sequel? So it's part one of a part two series. Does anyone know the, the part two, the name of the book? Acts. Yeah, so Acts is the sequel. So it continues on. And then the book of Luke is classified as a gospel. So it's, the genre is unique in that it is telling the story of a person and its ministry and his ministry, but it's not necessarily like a biography that tells all the details of the life from life to death. And so it's not necessarily chronological. So I thought that was interesting to note. And then also interestingly, 50% of Luke is unique to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. So there's a lot of stories in Luke that only we only read in Luke. And so um, yeah, I just thought that was. That was interesting as we study. So we've already discussed together in our group, that in the first four verses, we learn who the book was written to and why, the purpose of writing it. And so we see Luke endeavored to compile a narrative from eyewitness accounts with the purpose of assuring Theophilus of the truth concerning Jesus. So we don't know too much about Theophilus. By his name, we can assume that he was likely a Gentile, and that he was also a, social, a socially prominent figure, and we can see that when he's addressed as most excellent. Um, but otherwise, we just get that Luke wanted to, him to be confident that Jesus is the promised one of God who's come to save those from their sins. And, like, um, and Luke's purpose remains the same for us today. So he wants us to overcome our doubts, any doubts that we might have about Jesus, the promised one who came to save people from their sins. And so some main themes we're going to see in the book are God's divine plan of redemption. So we see this divine activity all throughout the book, the Holy Spirit's at work, and there's going to be Jewish rejection, and then that expansion of the kingdom to the Gentiles. 
There's loads of fulfillment prophecy, and like even in the first two chapters, there's just tons. Um, and then the outcast being accepted. So we're going to see so many stories of just this great reversal, the humble being exalted and the mighty brought low. And then Jesus' unique ministry to women and children. And so even in the first two chapters, we see how women are just so integral to God's plan. And then, of course, we'll see a call to, redemp- or to repentance and forgiveness. So those are just some themes that you'll probably draw out as we're staying together. And to just give you an idea of the overall structure of Luke, I just have it here behind me, so sorry, I can't see it right now. Um, but the first chunk is a preface and the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. And then there's another chunk of preparation for ministry, so we're going to see that next week. And then the Galilean ministry, so that's a larger chunk, like the revelation of Jesus, so that highlights his power over nature, demons, disease, death, and then an opposition to Jesus arises as people are asking, who is Jesus? And then there's the journey to Jerusalem, so it's a long chunk there that um, shows Jewish rejection, and then the new way of living, and Jesus focuses a lot about training his disciples in that section. And then finally, we see Jerusalem, the innocent one slain and raised. So Christ's arrest, death, and resurrection. So we're going to fly through all that. And I hope that framework kind of helps you as you're thinking through this large book. So we're going to jump into the first two chapters now. And so I'm just going to pray to start us off. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that is our guide in a dark world. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I pray as you work through these two familiar chapters that your spirit will give us eyes to see anew the good news of Christ's coming. And may we gain a deeper trust in your promises that you will do what you say you will do. And Lord, speak through me. I pray you give me clarity. And most importantly, let us see Christ today. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Luke 1, we did 1 to 4, so if you look at kind of Luke 5, it starts with a timestamp in the days of King Herod. And so I'm going to stop there because I think it's really important for us to note before this that God had been silent for 400 years. And he wants to kind of feel the weight of that, that people of God have been longing and waiting, just waiting for God to act. And in fact, they've been waiting since the promise of Genesis, all the way back for the snake crusher to come. And so since Eve, they've been waiting for this deliverer, this promised one. So would it, who would the son be? Would it be Cain? Nope. Would it be Isaac? No. It's got to be Saul. Nope. Can David look like a really good option? But nope. And so on and so forth. They're just waiting. The people of God were waiting for the fulfillment of God's prophecy for the deliverer to come and restore Israel. God sent prophets to give hope and to leave clues about the Messiah, but they waited in darkness and silence. Then, according to God's perfect plan, the light dawns. God has not forgotten his people, and it's time for the Messiah to enter history. And that's where we jump in in verse 5. And Luke paints this beautiful picture of this couple, this righteous couple, Zechariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth, who are living in deep disappointment. And the couple walk blamelessly, you can see in the passage, in all the commandments, but they had no child and no hope of a child because they were advanced in years. Kind of like that politically correct, they're advanced. 
The next events take place when Zachariah was chosen to serve this prestigious once-in-a-lifetime role in the temple. So it was his turn to burn the incense, and it was part of the morning sacrifice, and he would go into the holy place, which was just outside the Holy of Holies. And I don't want us to miss, like, this was an event of enormous anticipation, like once in a lifetime. This is, like, amazing for him to have this role. And it was in this, like, solitude, or supposed to be solitude, in this sacred place, that a messenger from the Lord appears to him. And as typical for people that were met by a messenger of the Lord, he was terrified and confused. And the angel Gabriel gives him this, this amazing news. You're going to have a son. And you're going to rejoice. It was just such a, a joyful message. This is what they've been praying for, right? And he would be no ordinary son. He would be filled with the Spirit, living a unique life dedicated to the Lord. And we know he, John the Baptist really did have a unique life. He would prepare the way and turning hearts back to God. And Gabriel's alluding to actually the last prophecies in Malachi. So it's, I think it's so cool. It's like God's picking up where he left off. And he's just alluding right back to Malachi, um, just right before the 400 years of silence. So this is the, that first hint that God is on the move and he's bringing his promises to fulfillment. So what is Zachary's response to this incredible news? It's like, uh... <laughs> Going to need a sign. It's a little hard to believe. There's a little obstacle here. You know, we're advanced in our years. I don't know how this is going to work. Um, so we see Zachary's faith is clouded by these worldly doubts. And if we're honest, how often do we, we respond like that too, right? We're just limited in our knowledge. We just can't see beyond. And Gabriel's answer is just so powerful and convicting. And I love when we talked to this in our, small, in our small group as well. He is just saying, I'm in the presence of God. God will do what he says he will do. And since Zechariah did not believe God's word, he would receive a sign, and that would be silence. So he would just need to watch and wait as um, these promises were fulfilled until the baby arrived. And then just in verse 24, we see that just as the angel said, Elizabeth conceives. It's just cool how God is affirming right away. Look, I said this was going to happen, and it happened. And Luke's noting that. Her response is really quite beautiful. It's just so full of gratitude and humility. You know, it could have been entitlement and bitterness, like, you know, about time. But no, we don't see that in the text. And we just see God's incredible mercy towards her and Zachariah and this couple. So now we see a second birth announcement. So if you can move to verse 26. We leave Jerusalem and we're traveling north to an obscure Galilean village. Um, we're leaving that heart of Israelite religious activity and culture, and we're going to this not-respected region of Nazareth, the last place you'd expect a, an angel to appear. And when you really think about it, like, Gabriel's announcement is, like, mind-blowing. It's just so packed with references of the Old Testament, the promises being fulfilled about the Messiah, and Jesus is going to be the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Um, he describes how Mary will bear a son, and the son... Uh, it would be, um, and he will be called the son of the Most High. The Most High was a reference to God in the Old Testament. Wow. We see references of the house of David and throne of David. I don't know if you see that in there. This goes back to 2 Samuel, all the way back when God promised David that in his line, there would be an eternal king that would reign forever. And we also see a virgin bearing a son in this announcement. And does that remind you of a, an Old Testament passage as well? Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Gabriel's linking all these prophecies to Jesus, the son that Mary will have. You're going to give birth to the Messiah. And of course, you know, Mary, limited by human knowledge, I can just imagine just kind of speaking up a little bit. Uh, there's one problem. <laughs> I'm a virgin. And here is, we see how Mary's virginity is essential. Gabriel explains how Jesus' holiness is derived from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus doesn't inherit a sinful nature. He will be called the Son of God. God is planting his son inside Mary to enter the world as a fragile human baby. Just, <laughs> so how does Mary respond to this shocking announcement? Here's another response. And in verse 38, we see her response. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Wow. So she believes the word of the Lord. She chooses to trust. She may not fully understand, but she has faith in God. And that would be no easy act of trust. You know, she's bearing a child out of wedlock, most likely going to be the focus of ridicule. Who knows what could happen? But she submits her life to his will because she believes nothing is impossible for God. Just such a good example. So we see Zachariah and Mary faced with the ultimate challenge of believing the word of God. We see these different responses. Zachariah did not believe. Mary humbly trusted. And so how do we respond? It kind of begs the question. Do we trust that he will do what he says he will do? Do we cling to his promises that he will complete the good work in you that he started? That he will never leave us nor forsake us? That his grace is sufficient? That he will forgive us? That Jesus is the only way to the Father? Nothing is impossible for God. So next we see this sweet little interlude. So we're going to move to verses 39 to 56. This interlude between the birth announcements and the actual births and this special meeting between Mary and Elizabeth, which is just so full of emotion and is really beautiful. And I just think, isn't it so lovely that God gives Mary that support in that daunting journey, you know, in Elizabeth? So she travels to visit her cousin, spend some time with her, and then experiences this really special greeting. I just think it's so cool. Even in the womb, John the Baptist is like pointing to Jesus. You know, he's already started his calling. And I want to pause for a moment, just a moment of silence for Elizabeth's ribs. Because I can only imagine how that would have felt. Or I know if you've ever experienced a baby kick your ribs, it like takes your breath away. Not in a good way. But I do wonder what it would have felt like to have a baby, you know, John the Baptist jump for joy in, in utero. And so this section is just so full of joy and celebration. These women are both just in amazement that God would use them in his plan. And Elizabeth blesses Mary for carrying the Messiah in her womb, just another affirmation, right? And for believing and trusting the word of God. And then this like humble praise flows out of Mary in this song, also known as the Magnificat. And so here we see Mary marvel at God's plan of redemption. She rejoices in the God of her salvation, that the God of heaven has shown mercy concerning her, the lowly servant. He noticed her and cares for her. It's just full of such beauty. And we'll see all these kind of themes of the mighty brought low and the humble exalted all throughout Luke. And just, I just think, what a special time it must have been for Mary for three months to spend with Elizabeth. 
And so we move on, and I just really love how Luke includes all these little fulfillments of these short-term promises. So just in case she needed a little more reassurance, Luke makes sure to note that Elizabeth did have a baby boy, as the angel foretold. And so we're looking at verses 57, moving along here. People were concerned when Elizabeth said, hey, its name's going to be John. They're like, whoa, this breaks from the cultural norm that usually the son was named after the father, or at least a family name, and John wasn't a family name. So then we see in faith now, Zachariah confirms in writing that the son will be named John. And immediately he was able to speak. And I think it's cool, after being silent for that long, what is the first thing that he chooses to say? And after months, the first thing out of his mouth is a blessing to God. He had plenty of time to think and reflect on his mistake. And through the pain of, dis- of discipline, he emerges the stronger man of God, which is so cool. The verses below are, are an outcome of his time of reflection. So here we see in, in Zechariah's song, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and this beautiful prophecy like flows out of his mouth. So he praises God for intervening in history with the whole, um, to deliver his people. And one commentary says it this way, though John is the child born, Zechariah's hymn focuses on the person to whom John points, the one promised long ago who will be sent to rescue and bless those who turn to him. And I think we, we could spend a long time here in this chunk, like connecting all the prophecies of the Old Testament, but I'll just point out two things. First, Zechariah puts an emphasis on God keeping his promises. You see his transformation from the beginning, and now he's here. He praises God for his faithfulness and his plan of redemption. God does what he says he will do. And then second, we see this theme of light. You guys see that kind of verse 79? And we'll continue to see this theme throughout the book of Luke. And it was actually verse 79 that brought me to tears when I was reading the Bible chronologically one year. And it's just the Old Testament is just so full of darkness and waiting. And they just really felt that. And finally, read this part about Jesus, the light of the world breaking through. It's just so powerful. Isaiah 9, 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. So Jesus, the light, he brings hope and guides us to peace. So next, Luke describes Jesus' birth. So I want to encourage us now. I'm sure many of you have this like memorized almost because you read it every Christmas. And so verses 1 to 21 is the announcement of Christ or is Christ's birth. And it's kind of neat how Luke compares John the Baptist's birth to Jesus's. And it like, pales in comparison. Like Jesus is superior. So Luke describes the details of a census, which is key, requiring Joseph and Mary to return to Bethlehem since he was in the lineage of David. And there it is again, like a prophecy fulfilled. And did you know that in Micah 5.2, so going back to the Old Testament, it says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And there it is. It happened. Mary gives birth to Jesus in the city of David. Just another affirmation, help us in our faith and build our certainty. So and also, I just love that detail of being wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger that Luke adds in there. Like, what a humble beginning for the Son of the Most High. He went to such great lengths to relate to us. So just as Zachariah describes this light, 
that is dawning. I just kind of love that, you know, the, the announcement for Jesus' birth is this like a spectacular light show. Just the angels filling the sky. And it wasn't to the king or people of power. Who was it to? It's lowly shepherds. And if you're like me, it's like, oh yeah, shepherds are just part of the nativity story, you know, the sheep and the shepherds. But like if you take a moment to really pause, like the king of the world is finally descending to earth. And who is notified? These lowly, dirty, you know, disregarded animal caretakers out in a field, not even like in the hubbub of Jerusalem. God works in just such unexpected ways. And I bet most of you, like I said, like have this verse 10 and 11 memorized, you know, for unto us is born this day in the city of David from all the years of, you know, Christmas repeating over and over again. Um, But have you ever wondered about that sign that was given to the shepherds? to help them be confident in the message. You know, it's just kind of afterthought. Oh, yeah, in the swaddling clothes. But it's kind of like, by the way, the long-awaited king, the Messiah, he's in a barn, sleeping a feeding trough, in some rags. <laughs> That's where you're going to find him. It's just so preposterous. Yet just a reminder of the mystery of God's plan and just how he works. And don't you think, don't you wish you could have been there? Just what would a multitude of angels look like? Just thousands of angels praising God, proclaiming peace to the world. And I kind of wonder how long the shepherds took to kind of gather themselves after. You know, the angels disappear and they're just like, like picking their jaws up off the ground or like pinching each other. Was that a dream? But it wasn't like they started to debate. Okay, hmm, do you think that was true? Was it not? They're like, the Bible says they went in haste. They're going to see. And, and it was just as the angels said. And so I wonder as, you know, you think on that passage... If, if we've lost or if you still have that wonder and awe of the coming of Christ, do we respond like the shepherds? Are we responding like glory to God, but then going to share and tell to others? And so after this miraculous birth, Luke takes us to the temple. And so this is verse 22. I'm not sure how familiar this is to you, but Luke makes sure to point out that Mary and Joseph did everything a regular, devout Jewish family would do, according to the law. That's how Jesus grew up. And it's in the temple we meet Simeon and Anna. And so Simeon was a righteous and devout man. So we read there, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And so that's just another reference to God's promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And once again, we see the Holy Spirit's at work. Have you guys noticed that? Have this, the Holy Spirit is just working through all these encounters And Simeon meets the one for whom he has been waiting, and he blesses God. I just, can you just kind of feel, imagine the joy that was just overflowing after all that waiting. He finally gets to meet. Salvation is here. And then the the Holy Spirit actually reveals that the salvation is not just for Israel anymore. It is for the whole, for all the people, for the Gentiles. And Luke hits that theme home, we're going to see continually through the book, that Jesus came for all people that expansion of the kingdom beyond. And then I don't want us to miss Anna. You know, she's just put in there with a couple sentences. And her story is is heartbreaking. She only had a few short years with her husband and then a widow for 84 years. But yet she devoted her life to worshiping in the temple. She made It seems like she made the most of her life to serve the Lord. And she was seen A reminder that God doesn't overlook us in our sorrow or in our suffering. 
And I think it's, it's such a kindness of God that he would allow her to arrive at, it says, the very hour and witness the coming, the long-awaited redemption of Jerusalem. And she too couldn't contain her joy. She had people to tell and she, she went on. And so just seeing her response is just encouraging. And, say, and so finally, we're almost at the end here. In our last section, we get a glimpse into Jesus' childhood. And I always wish there was more. You know, like I want to know more about Jesus as a child. But we do learn quite a bit here. Um, so verses 39, if you're tracking along. And this is the well-known story of when Mary and Joseph lost the Son of God. <laughs> I just feel like you know, they had one job. <laughs> but I'm sure it wasn't their finest hour. And I feel like if I was them, I wouldn't be so impressed that Luke added that one in the account. But it does reveal more about Jesus and, and his deity and humanity. And so I'm not sure if many, any of you lost a child before, like at an amusement park or just out your front door when they do that. Um, and, you know, your heart kind of just drops. We lost my brother at Disney World one year, and my family, like my parents still, you can tell the emotions, they still feel it to this day. Um, but I bet you never lost a kid for three days. That's what happened with Mary and Joseph. And so when they found Jesus in the temple engaging with the religious leaders, can, I imagine they'd be a little worked up. They're kind of like... You know, it's funny how it says in the Bible, behold, we were so distressed. <laughs> but, you know, like, we're losing our minds. Where have you been? But Jesus' calm response is just so telling. And we see in this story how Jesus is just a regular yet remarkable child. In verse 47, we read how people were amazed by his understanding and answers. Yet at the same time, in verse 51, we see him submit to his parents and head home to his ordinary life. So Luke is already beginning to paint this mystery of the deity and humanity of Christ, even in the beginning. And then Luke leaves us with verse 52 to cover approximately 20 years. Of just And Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. And so we're kind of left to wonder what that, what that is like. So these first two chapters are just jam-packed with a variety of emotions. So we see longing, we see excitement, we see fear, we see awe, we're confused. We see real people respond to the wondrous news of the coming of Christ. A barren woman, a doubting priest, a young virgin, lowly shepherds, devoted um, wise man, and an old widow. Just of all these people from a variety of different walks of life. Yet it shows that God uses diverse and ordinary people in his history, in his story. And we know the whole story living on this side of the cross, right? We know Jesus allowed himself to be mistreated and abused and died a shameful death on the cross, all for us. He took the punishment we deserved, and he saved us from the stain, from the presence, and the power of sin. And God's plan was always to save us through his son. And this salvation that's been talked about in the passage, this salvation is for all who believe and want to surrender their lives to Jesus as the Lord of their life. So do you believe this message of salvation? Have you made an active decision to surrender your life to Jesus, to ask him to forgive your sins? Like that invitation is open to all people, no matter what you've done or who you are, it's open and Jesus came for you, for us, for each one of us. And for those of us who have been walking with Jesus, what is our response to this message of good news? Do we respond with joy like Mary and Elizabeth for being counted righteous? 
Have we taken it, the message for granted? Do we live in humble faith like Mary, in excitement like the shepherds? Do we resonate with the reactions of the people in this story and that we've read about today? So I want to encourage you as we come to a close that God sees you and knows you. That's what we've seen in this passage, a reminder. And as we see in Luke 1 and 2, he isn't a distant God, but one who intervenes in creation. He cares about the details of our lives. And he keeps his promises. All throughout this first chapter, we see God fulfill these short-term, long-term promises to just encourage us in our faith. So let's trust his word as Mary did and humbly submit to a God who shows mercy to those who fear him. And so I couldn't teach on this passage without quoting a Christmas hymn. I don't know if you guys are thinking that as you're reading and studying. But come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation Hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. The promised Savior has come. That is good news of great joy. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, as we just come to a close this morning, we can't not be just moved by emotion, by your great love for us and coming to earth the lowly, dirty earth, to love us, to relate to us, and ultimately to save us. So Lord, I pray that that would move us today and encourage us in our faith and our walk with you or towards you if we have not yet committed our lives to you. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe your promises, that we would cling to those, and help us bolster our faith to trust you, Lord, that you will do what you say you will do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.